So we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, we talked this afternoon about how marriage laws work extended to same-sex couples in Europe, and then we saw the impact that passing those laws, extending those rights and obligations had. Um, in our next panel, we're going to bring it home and come back to the United States, um, and we've got just an amazing set of panelists to talk about what's going on in the U.S. and to give the reactions to what they heard earlier today. Um, leading the panel is one of the professors at, here at UCLA School of Law, who is an expert in entertainment law, constitutional law issues, and laws and illegal issues around sexual, sexual orientation and race and sexuality. He has innovated a new course here um, at UCLA Law School on race and sexuality and is a great addition to the Williams Institute and our faculty, uh, Professor Russell Robinson. Hello, thanks Brad, and uh, thanks to all the Williams um, staff and everybody that has worked hard to make this happen today. Thank you all for coming. Uh, we have a truly esteemed panel. Uh, I'm going to introduce them in a second. I just wanted to say it was very difficult uh, culling uh, a short description from uh, these uh, quite tremendous and impressive bio-hosts, so uh, I'm not going to be able to do justice to their uh, accomplishments, and I had to omit a lot of things, so I'm going to just sort of apologize for that in, in advance. Um, so uh, today we have, um, and I'm going in alphabetical order, uh, David Cadell is an attorney in pra private practice in Los Angeles. In addition to representing major clients in the television, motion picture, and recording industries, Mr. Cadell has, I'm going to call him David because I know him, uh, has litigated numerous cases in support of LGBT rights, including representing same-sex couples and Equality California in a group of lawsuits before the California Supreme Court challenging California's exclusion of same-sex couples from marriage. David served as a law clerk both for Judge Tatel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and for Justice Ginsburg of the Supreme Court. Uh, before opening his own law firm in 2003, David was a partner at Irel and Manella uh, in Los Angeles, where I should note he energetically recruited me on several occasions. Um, unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully, yeah. I ended up in academia, so, you know, couldn't cut it in the, in the real world of lawyers. Um, <laughs> uh, we have um, uh, Alfonso David, who is a staff attorney based in the national headquarters of Lambda Legal. He is also an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University School of Law, where I used to teach. Uh, David is uh, lead counsel on Funderburk versus New York, uh, Lambda Legal's lawsuit seeking recognition in New York, of a validly performed out-of-state same-sex marriage. He was also part of the legal team representing New York same-sex couples seeking the right to marry in the Hernandez litigation. Jennifer Pizer is a senior counsel for Lambda Legal and is based in the Western Regional Office in Los Angeles. Pizer has handled cases to advance domestic partner protections and the rights of lesbian and gay parents and to end sexual orientation discrimination in employment, education, health care, and housing. Her cases include Wu versus Lockyer, in which the San Francisco Superior Court ruled that the heterosexuals-only marriage rule violates the state constitution. Pizer also represented Darlene Jesperson in a famous federal sex discrimination case, uh, which I and several of my colleagues at UCLA uh, have and are writing about. It's a, quite a fascinating case. Uh, unfortunately, it came out the wrong way, uh, but that's better for us to write about it, of course. Um, in this case, in, in, in case you don't know, uh, the case involved Darlene Jesperson, uh, who um, was a bartender at Harris Casino in Las Vegas. And she was fired after more than 20 years of exemplary service, by all accounts, uh, for refusing to wear makeup. 
and the issue was whether this violates Title VII's ban on sex discrimination. Of course, men weren't required to wear makeup, but the Ninth Circuit said it did not violate Title VII. Um, Ted Trimpa is a shareholder in Brownstein, Hyatt and Farber's Government Relations, Land Use, and Regulatory and Administrative Law Groups. For the past six years, he's advised Tim Gill regarding his political investing, and Gill is the largest investor in Colorado and in the top five in the entire country. Prior to joining the firm, Trimpa served as the Director of Regulatory Affairs and Assistant General Counsel for Hayes, Hayes and Wilson, a prominent lobbying firm in Colorado. And finally, we have Evan Wolfson, who is the Executive Director of Freedom to Marry. Before founding Freedom to Marry, Wolfson served as Marriage Project Director for Lambda Legal, was co-counsel in the historic Hawaii marriage case, and participated in numerous gay rights and HIV AIDS cases. He also previously served as Associate Counsel to Lawrence Walsh in the Iran-Contra investigation and as an Assistant District Attorney in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he has numerous honors, including uh, the National Law Journal in 2000, named him one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America. Also, in 2004, he was named one of the Time 100, Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. All right, so we should have some great commentary from this illustrious panel. Um, the order that, I, that they're going to speak in is we're going to start with David and then Jenny, Alfonso, Ted and Evan, and I've asked them to speak for eight minutes each. I have little cue cards that will uh, remind you when two minutes are left and when you're out of time. Uh, we wanted to uh, try to keep the uh, presentations uh, um, tight so that we could have enough time to uh, have a crosstalk among the panelists. Uh, I might have a question for them, and then I'm going to open it up for everybody to uh, ask questions. So uh, with that, we will start with David. Thank you, Professor Robertson. I'd like to thank uh, the Williams Institute for inviting me here to join this panel. Uh, the brochure for today's event described this panel by making reference to the fact that, quote, 2006 was a sobering year in the fight for marriage equality. And that is true. And I'm honored to be part of this group of lawyers who did not win marriage equality in 2006. <laughs> but I suspect that most of you fit into that category, too. Um, my topic on this panel is California uh, and where we are today in California. Um, I'd like to, I am co-counsel with numerous other lawyers in the marriage equality litigation that's currently pending before the California Supreme Court. And I want to acknowledge my co-counsel, uh, which are the National Center for Lesbian Rights, Shannon Mentor, Lambda Legal, including Jenny Pizer and John Davidson, and the ACLU. And our case is currently before the California Supreme Court. Thirty years ago this year, in 1977, the California legislature amended Family Code Section 300, which sets forth the requirements for marriage, for the express purpose of making clear that same-sex couples may not marry. That amendment to the Family Code was signed into law by uh, Governor Jerry Brown. Thirty years later, Attorney General Jerry Brown will be defending that law in the California Supreme Court. And I'd like to, to speak for a few minutes about what's happened in the ensuing 30 years here in California that has, has, that has events that have laid the groundwork for this litigation. Uh, in the early to mid-1980s, uh, local municipalities in California began recognizing same-sex couples as domestic partners. and In other words, recognizing them as families in the eyes of the law. Prior to that, same-sex couples were strangers to the law. Uh, 
Berkeley, West Hollywood, and then a slew of larger cities and counties, including Los Angeles County, uh, began to recognize domestic partners on a local level. In the year 2000, California's statewide domestic partnership registry went into effect. The rights were extremely limited, but it was a significant event that the state of California was officially recognizing same-sex couples as families. Unfortunately, just a few months later, uh, the California population enacted uh, Proposition 22, which was designed to, to restrict California from recognizing marriages of same-sex couples that were in, entered into outside of California. Notwithstanding Proposition 22, uh, uh, the California legislature continued, and by the way, consistently with Proposition 22, the California uh, legislature continued to enact protections for same-sex couples through the domestic partnership laws. And by 2005, California domestic partners could enjoy most of the state law benefits uh, and responsibilities that spouses enjoy. Now, since, since, the, since that law, 8205, went into effect, the legislature has continued to grant more protections to domestic partners. And in addition, the legislature in recent years has enacted a slew of anti-discrimination laws that essentially make it impermissible for the state of California at any level to just discriminate based on sexual orientation, with one prominent exception, of course, and that is the marriage laws. The question sometimes arises whether our marriage litigation has come at the right time or whether it's come too early. We all recall, of course, the events uh, in San Francisco when Gavin Newsom uh, and the county of San, city and county of San Francisco opened the doors uh, to same-sex couples marrying, only to see the Supreme Court of California close those doors in short order. It's worth noting, though, that when the California Supreme Court issued its initial order uh, telling the city of San Francisco to stop issuing marriage licenses, uh, while it considered the, the legality of San Francisco's actions, the Supreme Court issued an order that essentially seemed to invite a constitutional challenge to be filed in the superior courts by couples seeking to marry. And that litigation is now pending. In addition, California made history just a few years ago uh, when its legislature enacted the first marriage bill that had ever been passed by the legislature of a state. Of course, unfortunately, Governor Schwarzenegger vetoed that bill. This year, there is another bill pending before the California legislature that would authorize same-sex couples to marry here in California. I'd like to focus for a few moments on the most recent event in, uh, here in California affecting marriage rights, and that is the decision of the Court of Appeal in October 2006. Uh, in which the Court of Appeal, unfortunately, declined to order the state of California to permit same-sex couples to marry. There was much bad news in that opinion. The good news about that opinion is that the California Supreme Court has ordered it depublished and it can no longer be cited as law while the Supreme Court reviews the case. Citable or not, it's worth discussing. And I want to highlight a couple of characteristics about that opinion. One is that in, in large respect, the Court of Appeals' opinion displayed an abdication of responsibility. Namely, the Court of Appeal in large part abandoned its solemn responsibility as a court sworn to uphold the California Constitution to strike down statutory provisions that conflict with that Constitution. In its opinion, the Court of Appeal gratuitously stated 
that judges are not free to rewrite statutes, and that judges cannot, by, quote, judicial fiat, rule in favor of marriage equality. However, the truth of the matter is that there would have been no judicial fiat involved, and there would have been no rewriting of statutes. Instead, the court was fundamentally uncomfortable with its constitutional role to review and possibly invalidate statutes when those statutes violate the Constitution. When the courts enforce the Constitution, they're respecting the public will, not, uh, not violating the public will. And in fact, by enforcing the constitutional guarantees, they are, they are enforcing the public's will expressed in its highest form. Second, the Court of Appeals' opinion in, in many respects reflected an abandonment of reasoning. Constitutional jurisprudence depends on careful reasoning from precedent. But judges look to precedent not simply to discover whether their hands are tied, but in order to understand the logic that lies behind case decisions and to ensure that the law continues to, to have behind it a logic that will inspire the public to respect and follow the law. The Court of Appeal, however, continually seemed to hold it against the plaintiffs that theirs was a case of first impression, as though the plaintiffs did not know that. The Court of Appeal uh, emphasized that the plaintiffs were bringing new claims and that there were no cases affirmatively holding what the plaintiffs wanted this court to hold, in particular on the issue of whether laws that discriminate based on sexual orientation should be subjected to a heightened form of scrutiny by the courts. The, uh, the Court of Appeal repeatedly stated that because no court had ever held that laws that discriminate based on sexual orientation should be subjected to heightened review, that it would not hold them to such review. The fact of the matter is, however, that the U.S. Supreme Court twice in the last decade has, has struck down state laws as being completely and totally irrational. And the lesson to be learned from the U.S. Supreme Court striking down these laws as utterly irrational is not that rational basis review is all that applies to laws that discriminate based on sexual orientation, but my time is up, but that heightened scrutiny should apply because we should be suspicious of any law that does so discriminate. Okay, well, so my job is to uh, to take some of those same themes and give a little update of the lessons we may be learning and next steps uh, in Washington State, having been involved in uh, the litigation there, which um, similarly, as you all know, did not result in same-sex couples being able to marry in Washington State. Um, but but let me start just by noting that... Um, that this is an incredibly intense time to be doing this work, and I think it's terrific that the Williams Institute has framed today's work um, with the international focus, because I think we are in a way, uh, these days, in a way that we have not in the past, uh, been having conversations across international lines and collaborative work in a way we, we never have done before. And I'll put in a plug, since Professor David Cruz is here, that the International Gay and Lesbian Law Association has held a number of triennial conferences uh, on these issues, and the 2008 one's going to be here in Los Angeles. So if you liked the international flavor of, of today's work, um, see David about helping with next year's conference. Um, so litigation has ups and downs. We had tremendous uh, successes in 2004 and five, and 2006 was kind of rotten. Um, but, um, but we're very aware when we do this work that social change is a long-haul process and impact litigation um, is, is not about silver bullet cases that change everything with one, with one lawsuit. It's why so many of our groups are called Legal Defense and Education Fund. 
there's a lot of, of community work that has to go into them, and we don't pack up our tents and go home uh, when we have setbacks. Uh, and, of course, the marriage work is, is continuing in a number of states and here in California. Um, there are, I think, some important uh, lessons that we're taking from the setback that we had in Washington State. Um, and so let me tease out a couple of those, because some of them we're applying um, as we proceed in states like Iowa, where, where we have uh, cases going on, and there's a number of cases going on. Um, in Washington, as many of you, I hope, know from having read the decisions, there were five different decisions. The plurality opinion uh, by Justice Madsen was joined by two other justices, um, and I'll talk a little bit about what it held. Uh, there was also a decision, a dissenting decision by Justice Fairhurst that was actually uh, had four justices joining it, and that dissent, therefore, had more votes, more votes for, for allowing same-sex couples to marry in Washington state than any of the other decisions had. And, and I see our job in Washington and elsewhere to be uh, to um, make that reasoning the law. On many issues throughout history, the dissents have become the majority opinion. It just means we have to do more work. Um, the plurality opinion um, held, uh, as the Court of Appeal in California did, that sexual orientation classifications should not receive uh, strict scrutiny. But um, there were a couple of parts of the reasoning there that may represent open doors for us. A critical piece of it was that that, that opinion holds that we had not established uh, that sexual orientation is an immutable personal characteristic. Now, the term immutable has a particular meaning in equal protection law, uh, and it was disappointing to realize that we had not effectively explained to the court what that term means. It does not mean um, that it's genetic or that is absolutely never changeable. As we know, people are able to change their sex, and people can change the physical manifestation of traits associated with race. And religion is generally seen as a characteristic that gets uh, strict scrutiny for a number of reasons, but that's generally recognized. And, of course, people can change their religion. The point is that it's not a trait that the government has any business coercing people <laughs> into changing by offering benefits or withholding benefits based on whether you're conforming uh, on as to that trait. So we didn't get that point across. Uh, we did provide information about sexual orientation, including uh, a declaration from the head of the Washington Psychological Association that was uh, a compendium of the research findings and set out that actually these days the overwhelming weight of expert opinion on that subject is that this is not a trait that's readily subject to change. And when people feel pressed to change it, it can cause a lot of psychological harm. So I think... Um, the court was not persuaded by that, um, and so we have a question for future work in Washington. It seems as though that might represent an open door to do more work in future cases or in other venues um, on that point. We didn't have, in other words, a definitive ruling uh, from that court that sexual orientation classifica classifications shall not get heightened review, um, but it was not applied in the marriage case. The other uh, key part of the ruling was that the court uh, said that, um, uh, well, two other things, that, that, um, that marriage uh, is not a fundamental right for same-sex couples. Um, we, we had not persuaded the court that this is a fundamental right that all people have, um, and, and some people are being denied the right to exercise it, but other, and other people are getting to exercise it. Instead, the court saw the right as defined by history as being limited um, to a right to um, marry the person that you love as long as the state approves of their sex. Um, 
the, the uh, dissenting opinion um, understood it the way we think it should be understood, that this is a fundamental right that all of us have, just like the right to vote or to speak. Uh, these are not rights that should be design, denied to people based on group membership. Um, it, it's a right to vote. It's not a women's right to vote, even though it was denied for a period of time. Uh, that meant it was denied. It didn't mean that it didn't exist. Um, but one of the areas that's posing some bigger challenges for us in, in other cases, and it may pose some troubles in the next steps of the work in Washington, is that the court held that uh, the Washington state uh, marriage restriction and the state DOMA um, passed the rational basis test, um, adopting a framing of that test that we first saw in Indiana from the Court of Appeal in the Morrison case, uh, that... Um, the state had a legitimate reason for, to set up marriage, to look after um, heterosexual couples that were having children, uh, creating a lot of incentives for different sex couples to take care of the children that they have biologically, uh, and accepted the finding of the legislature that it's in the best interest of children to be raised by their genetic parents. Uh, so that's teed up a couple questions that we have to deal with both in Washington and in elsewhere. Um, First of all, to try to clarify what the rational basis test is really supposed to be, because if it's just an inquiry about whether the legislature, whether the majority had a good reason to set up a scheme through which the majority gives itself benefits, well, it's not really an equal protection test. Of course, the majority has a good reason to set up a system by which it gives itself benefits. The equal protection question is whether excluding a group serves any legitimate purpose. It isn't enough to say oh, well, we weren't thinking about you when we did it. You know, uh, we weren't intending to deny you anything. You just weren't on our mind. Um, it really has to be, does the government uh, accomplish something legitimate when it excludes the group? Um, I think another critical problem represented by the opinion is the repeated incantation throughout it that the court has terribly limited power when it comes to testing a legislative uh, decision, um, that, that the courts really have to defer uh, to, a, to a very great extent. From our perspective, if the courts really were that powerless, if you look back at American history, we would probably still have segregated institutions. Women would not have access to any number of, uh, of professions, and there would be all sorts of, of inequalities that the courts have been instrumental in changing. Uh, but seeing that expression from the court, I think, is a symptom of, of political work that's been going on for decades to undermine the legitimacy of courts enforcing basic constitutional protections. In other words, it's terribly disappointing to see this kind of language. Uh, it's dispiriting, but it's not a shock because it is, I think, the result of, of a lot of social and political discussion. And our job is not just to be making good arguments, um, but to be participating in the, in the conversation in our society about why the courts need to do their job of enforcing the Constitution. Good afternoon. Um, first, I want to say at the outset that I'm extremely happy to be here and away from the brutal weather in New York City. Um, I want to thank uh, the Williams Institute and his executive director, Brad, Brad uh, Sears for inviting me to present at the panel, and also to Russell Robinson for moderating the panel. I'm going to briefly discuss three issues as it relates to relationship rights for same-sex couples in the eastern part of the U.S. Um, I'm going to focus on the affirmative marriage litigation cases. 
Uh, first, I'll talk briefly about cross-jurisdictional recognition of same-sex unions. And finally, I will talk about the continuing trend that we see of right-wing collateral attacks of government respect for same-sex unions. So beginning with the affirmative marriage litigation, as most of you probably know, over the past three years, there were four lawsuits that were filed on the East Coast seeking marriage rights for same-sex couples. Um, well, maybe I'm leaving out another one. Uh, suits were filed by Lambda Legal in New York and New Jersey. Uh, GLAD filed a lawsuit in Connecticut, and the ACLU filed a lawsuit in Maryland. Uh, we also filed a lawsuit in Iowa. In New York, the high court ruled that the government is not constitutionally required to allow same-sex couples to marry. Um, efforts are currently underway in New York to hopefully make that uh, a nullity and change that through the legislative process. In New Jersey, the high court uh, currently ruled that the equality provision of the New Jersey's Constitution requires the government to open the doors to the rights, privileges, and obligations of marriage to same-sex couples. But what the court did in New Jersey is say that the legislature had an option. They could either amend the marriage laws in New Jersey to allow same-sex couples to marry, or they could create an alternative statutory scheme. And the legislature created an alternative statutory scheme called civil unions. And as of Monday, uh, same-sex couples in New Jersey had the right to enter into civil unions, although there was a 72-hour waiting period there were a number of same-sex couples that are now civil unionized in New Jersey. In Connecticut, um, the trial court ruled that same-sex couples who actually can enter into civil unions in Connecticut do not have a constitutional right to enter into marriage. And the arguments, of course, were that uh, if you are being afforded all of the rights, the privileges, and the obligations of marriage, there is no constitutional violation if we don't afford you marriage. Um, and that court case is now pending before the high court in Connecticut. And then finally, in Maryland, the trial court ruled that the state's constitution requires the state to extend marriage rights to same-sex couples. We filed an amicus brief in that case dealing with a lot of the rational basis arguments that Jenny mentioned, and that case is currently pending before an appellate court. Turning to the next issue of cross-jurisdictional recognition, which is probably what I want to spend most of my time talking about today, um, as more and more same-sex couples legalize their relationships, we are confronting, or they are confronting, and we as their advocates are confronting, challenges in obtaining cross-jurisdictional recognition. Um, as most of you have already heard during this uh, presentation today, same-sex couples can currently get married in five countries around the globe. They can also enter, enter into marriage in Massachusetts. Cottonmouth. Um, Same-sex couples can also enter into civil unions in Vermont, in Connecticut, and in New Jersey, and it's functional equivalent here in California. Now, many same-sex couples legalize their relationships in jurisdictions other than their home states. Further, many same-sex couples, like different-sex couples, move around for a variety of reasons. Could be employment, could be a family issue, um, and when they leave, and when same-sex couples leave that jurisdiction in which they legalize their relationship and move to a new jurisdiction, they find themselves in a maze, um, Pan's Labyrinth, basically. Um, and they find themselves trying to figure out ways in which they can have their relationships recognized. I, I think of the, the states in the U.S. and the rights that same-sex couples have as a patchwork. 
And I think of it in terms of six different types of states, right? The first state is states that allow an open civil, civil marriage to everyone, including different sex and same-sex couples. The second are states that deny same-sex couples the right to marry, but allow them to enter into civil unions. The third, states that deny same-sex couples the right to marry, deny them the right to enter into civil unions, but recognize valid out-of-state marriages. The fourth, states that define marriage as being limited to a man and a woman, either through a constitutional amendment or a statutory DOMA. The fifth, states that define marriage between a man and a woman, refuse to recognize an out-of-state marriage between a same-sex couple. And then the last, which is the worst, states that define marriage as being between a man and man and a woman that refuse to recognize an out-of-state marriage between a same-sex couple and refuse to recognize same-sex relationships. And that would include domestic partnerships and civil unions. So as same-sex couples think about, well, where are we going to move next? They have to, two minutes left, they have to think about um, where is, where should we move um, and where will we get the most protections? In New York, uh, we have uh, a common law that has now been interpreted and applied by the former and current attorney general as ex- extending respect to valid out-of-state marriages. Um, so the rule goes as follows. Valid out-of-state marriages are respected in New York unless it is abhorrent to public policy or is prohibited by positive law, which is statutory law. Now, there are only two types of marriages that are abhorrent to New York public policy, incestuous marriages and polygamous marriages. And marriages between same-sex couples certainly do not fall in, in, into either of those categories. Um, so we've had several municipalities that have issued pronouncements that they will respect out-of-state marriages between same-sex couples. Of course, a few have not, and we have commenced litigation accordingly. Um, as same-sex couples move and think about where they should get these protections, we also encounter situations where same-sex couples break up and they have to figure out whether or not their states will recognize their relationships for the express purpose of dissolution. Uh, We're unfortunately seeing a lot of those cases cropping up around the country and some of them especially on the East Coast. Turning to the last issue, which is collateral attacks. As many many governmental entities and agencies respect valid out-of-state marriages between same-sex couples, we're finding that right-wing groups are collaterally attacking those relationships by suing the public entities. So in New York, we have two lawsuits that have been filed by the Alliance Defense Fund, which is a right-wing religious-based organization, and they sued the state controller and Westchester County Executive Andrew Spano. They sued them, arguing that by respecting out-of-state marriages for purposes of public benefits, they were misappropriating their tax dollars, and as a result, violating the general municipal law and the finance law, respectively. Now, we have moved to intervene in both of those lawsuits representing same-sex couples that were married in Canada but live in New York, and their marriages are indeed respected by the state. They're state employees. They're entitled to retirement benefits, to pension benefits, and we're seeking to intervene in that lawsuit. We're waiting to, um, we're waiting to get a ruling from the court. Uh, so, as I mentioned during the beginning, unfortunately, we have a patchwork uh, on the East Coast and the rest of the country where it's unclear what kind of benefits you have, and unfortunately, a lot of same-sex couples find out after they move. Thanks. Well, I'm here to provide a little bit of a different perspective, and our path to marriage equality really 
can go three ways. One, utilize the courts, which is what we've been talking about. Second is to have legislatures actually enact legislation doing it. And the third would be doing it by popular vote. And the two areas that I want to discuss in my brief eight minutes, and I'm going to say ditto to all the thank yous, um, but there's no need of going through them again, except, Chuck, thank you for the vision of creating the Williams Institute. This is extraordinary. Um, are, first of all, the popular vote. As many of you may know, in Colorado this last year, we decided, when knowing that we were going to face a same-sex marriage ballot initiative, decided to proactively put on the ballot a civil unions measure. We called it domestic partnership, but essentially it would have created the same rights responsibilities for same-sex couples as married couples, except you just didn't call it marriage. Um, the hope was, let's try to separate the religious emotion marriage piece out of the equation and have a simple discussion about basic legal rights and responsibilities for same-sex couples. Um, the campaign was going swimmingly until our dear Ted Haggard got bent over a sofa by a gay prostitute holding meth, and um, it was an extraordinary development. Whether or not we would have won, I don't know. We ended up losing 53-47. Um, we commissioned a poll and analysis two weeks after the election, and the poll was of those people who voted in the election, and according to that poll, we won 52-48. Now, the lessons that we took away from this were, one, I think we still have a ways to go before the public really is aligned with an acceptance of gayness and then being willing to actually do something affirmatively for us. Um, and then secondly, I think that there was a certain level of, of gay ick. You had a nice, boring discussion about probate, hospital visitation, workers' compensation, right to sue for wrongful death, and this gets trumped by... It was only a gay massage, was the, the line that Ted Haggard used, which I always wondered exactly what a gay massage was, a masseuse singing show tunes. <laughs> you know, Ted'll come out tomorrow. <laughs> um, what I can say is, during the campaign, we used et um, Bill's research extensively. It was very useful to us. Uh, but we came away thinking and understanding and now believing that I think we have to take this stuff straight up, which leads me to the third area, and that is, is the path to marriage equality by passing legislation. What's interesting is you look at the gay community strategy around marriage equality over the last decade. It's been very court-based, very litigation-heavy, and it's kind of after the fact that we've started approaching this, rightfully because the public wasn't there and legislators definitely weren't there, about doing this legislatively, but we don't really have an infrastructure that's in place to do that. And if you look at the states that have been considering some type of relationship recognition, whether it's domestic partnership or civil unions or marriage, the only place that really has a true infrastructure to do that and support that was mass equality, and that was created after the fact. And we cannot expect to have marriage equality with a multifaceted strategy, which I think we have to have, meaning you have to have litigation along with legislative action, unless we have an underlying foundation base, not only of education, but bluntly of power. And power comes from electing people. And we as a community do not have a state-based electoral strategy. And until we have a state-based electoral strategy, that means helping people at the state legislative level, at the attorney general level, at the gubernatorial level. We're going to continue butting into when we lose in the courts or if we win in the courts, they're going to go back into the legislature and we need to have something, a strategy picking targeted states, and Evan will go through this in a minute, where 
we try to play this dynamic rather than fight the dynamic. Because from our lessons that we've seen in Colorado, until we create an environment of fear and respect, they're not going to do this, out, legislators are not going to do this out of victimization arguments. They're not going to do this out of fairness arguments. They're going to do this out of, you've been there to help me, and if I don't help you, I may suffer something. And that may sound harsh, but I think it's just the truth. And we use that approach in Colorado to get hate crimes added to sexual orientation and gender identity added to a hate crime statute with a conservative governor, not with a Democratic governor. And we got to start thinking, I think, in this strategic paradigm as we move forward. So I will close with my favorite line from what I use in Colorado and I use when advising Tim. That is, the path to marriage equality, no matter how you define it, is not going to be a straight line. I don't think we have to be intellectually honest along the way. But if we don't push the debate into the legislative forum and force people to talk about it, it's going to take us an additional 10 years to actually get there. Because I think the American public is there. Our legislators will just follow. We need to push them to follow. So little Evan gets to go last. And... And that's good because it gives me the opportunity to actually pull on what each of my colleagues and friends have said here today and throw this out and then open it up for conversation. So let me just try to tease out some of the points that I heard people say. I mean, the first is that I think it's we've got to be very clear that the loss we had in courts last year, particularly in Washington State and New Jersey, were not really losses about marriage. And they were really not losses that reflected where people are about gay rights. What happened last year, particularly with those courts, is that after six years of an administration that has mounted an unprecedented assault on the courts, a campaign of intimidation, and indeed stacking courts with judges, our movement got pulled into that orbit and got sucked down by that gravity. Were those cases to come before those courts after the November 2006 election in the climate that exists in this country today, no one knows what the outcome would be, but I would like to see that. I would like to take those chances. So let's not misread some of the things that happen to tell us where the country is, but instead to understand the dynamic quality of where we can make the country be in order to achieve the results we want. A second thing that came out of those court decisions is, was that thanks to the brilliant lawyering job, and it wasn't just the actual lawyers who were brilliant, like Lambda Legal and the ACU and National Center for Lesbian Rights and GLAD and David and Jenny and Alfonso and John and the others who did their characteristically wonderful job. But they also put forward this amazing array of friends of the court. When we stood before these courts, we were not alone. There was an extraordinary array of voices from labor, from women, the women's movement, from people of color organizations telling stories of diverse people and communities business groups, etc. We were making a presentation to the courts and judges that now we need to be making to the country. And what we showed in those cases, even though we were only able to get the 5-4 votes, as it turned out, or the vote in New Jersey getting us almost there under the climate that existed then, what we showed was that the opposition has got nothing. There is no good argument, no good reason for denying committed same-sex couples the freedom to marry. The arguments were revealed to be, in Lincoln's words, as thin as the homeopathic soup made from the shadow of a pigeon that had starved to death. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and now we've got to take that message to the country. <laughs> Sometimes using Lincoln's words. A second important thing to see was that David framed this, quoting from the, I guess, the, the introduction to this panel, as 2006 was a sobering year for the marriage equality movement. Here's some of what happened in that sobering year off the top of my head just now. We won civil union in yet another state. Civil union didn't exist in this country. Indeed, the term was coined when this, when this happened last year, a mere six years before, as a product of the fight for the freedom to marry. And now we're all disappointed, and it doesn't even count, and it's sobering when we get civil union. Something we created and made so easily the default and indeed inadequate that we can brush past it as somehow a sobering result, something that seemed unattainable, unattainable seven years ago. That's one thing that happened. A second thing is we won a unanimous Supreme Court decision saying that gay couples, same-sex couples, their children are worthy of full inclusion and equality. The court under the context didn't go the full mile, but they unanimously ruled this. Unanimously. We defeated one of the anti-gay ballot measure attacks in as surprising a state as Arizona. The legislators in states such as California and Massachusetts and in other places who voted against anti-gay attacks and indeed for marriage bills were all reelected. And leaning opponents of gay people's freedom to marry were defeated at the ballot box in states across the country. In the ups and downs that are characteristic of the trends of any poll and any major controversy or question or issue in flux, we hit in the Gallup poll 51% opposition to the freedom to marry. Not good enough, but 51%. And I think as a true bellwether of what happened during this sobering year for the marriage equality movement, <laughs> Hillary Clinton announced that her position on marriage had evolved, a word that we didn't even know we were allowed to use in this country anymore. <laughs> And in fact, if you parse everything she said in the interview and stitch it together, she is not opposed to gay people winning the freedom to marry in the state she represents in the Senate, New York, and believes, and this is her quote now, you, meaning you, should have everything with nothing left out. That's what Hillary Clinton said as she readied to run for president. That was the sobering year. Okay, now we're in 2007. In 2007, picking up where Ted left off, there is a tremendous urgency. The issue that's before us now is not that this is too early or undoable. Winning the freedom to marry, particularly in the next wave of states, in the engine states, that in the patchwork that civil rights advances have always been, can pull us all forward, is eminently within our reach if we do the reaching, there are 15 states where we could, not necessarily will, in the vagaries of history and the times that you get lucky and the times that you don't, but where we could win the freedom to marry within the next five years. In the next three years, the states where we could win the freedom to marry through a mix of legislative centered, Ted, litigation centered, and both strategies. California, Connecticut, 
Iowa, Maine, Maryland, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and Vermont, and we will fight and hold it in Massachusetts. Add in the other five states where it will take a little longer because the work has just begun, where we could win it within the next five years, Illinois, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Oregon, and Washington. And yes, I said Oregon, where despite the passage of the anti-gay constitutional amendment, we are poised this year to win non-discrimination and civil union and promote the buyer's remorse and understanding that will enable us to flip that civil union to marriage within five years because they in Oregon are committed to doing that work and are sticking with it. That's the landscape. The question in front of all of us, funders, advocates, attorneys, aspiring attorneys, citizens, people with voices who can reach out to others is, are we going to do this? Are we going to engage in the conversations, raise the money, devote the effort, and do the work that every civil rights movement has to do? Rights are not handed to people. Freedom is not handed to people. People organize, people act, people engage, and seize it. So I'll end with this point. The question, the topic of this panel is actually, what can the U.S. learn from Europe about the freedom to marry, winning the freedom to marry for same-sex couples? And I think the single most important thing we can learn from Europe, and yes, from South Africa, another country that in the sobering year of 2006 ended marriage discrimination, is that if South Africa can do it, if General Francisco Franco's Spain can do it, <laughs> if Europe can do it, so can we. So let's do it. I'd like to thank all the panelists for their insightful comments. Uh, we're going to open it up to the audience in a second, and we have somebody with a microphone who's going to come and um, uh, let you speak into the microphone because we are taping this. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to uh, give the panelists another opportunity to touch on Europe because we actually did want to uh, talk about world developments in terms of marriage rights. And so does anyone else want to add to what Evan said in terms of what's going on in the world and how it relates to what's happening in the United States? I mean, I could throw out a few points. We're going to see marriage in Sweden within a year or two. And most likely what they're going to do is bring in marriage and dispense with the registered partnership, other parallel status. We're going to, we saw uh, the Irish Parliament just voted down a civil unions bill that was patterned after Britain's, but that will come back. The Italian government that had pledged to do civil union in Italy just fell, but there's now a caretaker regime, and that may mean that they remain in power and continue to push it. These are the ups and downs in the sobering months and the leaping months that we have. We will have, as Boris said, marriage pretty much throughout Europe within a decade, 15 years. South Africa shows us what can happen there, although obviously it'll be tough going in many other parts of the continent. And we've also seen in Latin America, significant steps. We saw uh, Colombia's parliament take up a civil union bill, I think within the last month, and, pa and require legal conformity 
and, and equal protections and responsibilities, though they're still sorting out the details. I believe that there was uh, Mexico City, the largest city in Mexico, enacted a partnership status for gay couples. And uh, again, we're seeing this kind of burgeoning activity. And I guess the other thing that happened in the sobering year of 2006 was that in the Holy Land, Israel, the Supreme Court ruled that Israel must honor the lawful marriages from around the world. Not bad for a bad year. Jenny? Well, this isn't exactly responsive to your question, but it's not Europe. But I I would say that um, with the focus on Washington that that I um, uh, am here to to provide, there there is a similar issue in that... um, uh, that Canada is allowing couples to marry, of course, and, and there is this particular intense awkwardness there for people because people go back and forth across the border a lot, and it makes a, a particularly intense and painful uh, situation for, for people who do go back and forth across that border to have to have Washington not uh, respect those marriages. Um, and maybe not a lesson, but a parallel that is going on there now is that in the wake of, of the Anderson decision uh, case not being successful, there have been um, two bills introduced into the Washington legislature, sort of taking the invitation that was given or the suggestion given by the court to, to do some work in the legislature, uh, a marriage bill and a domestic partner bill. Um, and recent polling in Washington that, that just came out a couple of weeks ago, a statewide polling suggests that there is um, majoritarian support for domestic partner uh, protections in Washington state now, uh, where the, you know, the bill has only been, um, was only introduced a matter of weeks ago. But the work on domestic partnership there is being done with a very deliberate political and messaging strategy uh, that always frames the work uh, for domestic partner protections in the context of marriage being the the only acceptable goal in terms of the equality that people are entitled to, uh, and that that nobody should be mistaken for a minute that passing a domestic partner law would would leave people appropriately protected or respected or, you know, that'll take care of the gay issue. It absolutely won't. And also all of the political work is being done with a focus to have both of those bills front and center simultaneously. If the domestic partner bill goes through first and provides, you know, a dozen or so critical protections, that will be really important to people who need those protections. But it's only part of their overall work to get marriage equality. I also think that there is, in the state legislative world, a real lack um, or just non-existent understanding of relationship recognition from around the world. I would bet if you went into most state legislatures and said, do you realize that there's marriage equality in Spain, Catholic country, they would look at you like, you're kidding me. And I think that the more that we can take this foundation and help provide a context of it's not just those, you know, crazy Nordic people that are doing this, but it's, you know, cultures of all stripes and kinds from all around the world. Um, I think that these, I think people will move. It's just, I think it's incumbent upon us though, to take the facts that we have at hand and actually use them. And I don't think we do a good, a good enough job of that. I just also wanted to point out a practical problem we have here in California. Um, in California, uh, we, the state of California will not recognize a marriage of a same-sex couple from another jurisdiction, but will recognize a civil union or a domestic partnership or a similar relationship. So we have the irony here in California that uh, it appears that those European nations that have 
uh, civil partnerships, those couples' relationships would be recognized here in California, but those nations such as Spain, Netherlands, Belgium, those marriages of same-sex couples receive no recognition under state law. Uh, and so it's it's an irony that we have as a result of Proposition 22, which says that the state of California will not recognize marriages from out of state, whereas uh, the domestic partnership statutes say that we will recognize similar relationships as long as they're not marriages. It's it's an obvious absurdity, but that's what discrimination that's irrational ends up producing. I was actually going to mention something else related to what Jenny was, was saying, that we live in a global economy, and I think sometimes we underestimate the impact that, that the economics will have on this discussion or the discourse about marriage equality, because at least in New York, there are so many couples that live bicoastally. They, they actually spend a lot of time in New York, but they spend a lot of time overseas, so as we see more countries that legalize marriages between same-sex couples and they don't have residency requirements, I think what you find is that those states are going to be confronted with this issue is of do we recognize your marriage and economics will be an issue. Great. Thank you all. Okay, let's open it up to the audience. Um, and uh, please wait for the microphone. Um, let's start over here. Thanks. Hi. Yeah, thanks. Um I was wondering if I could hear from the panelists. Um, I haven't mentioned the 15 states that were maybe within the next five years going to have, hopefully, same-sex marriage. Um, but a lot of the discussion has been on the state marriage rights, and we haven't heard much about federal marriage rights, which include immigration, social security, income tax, things like that. And it's great if you can have state recognition, but if you're in a binational relationship, obviously uh, it doesn't help you at all because immigration is a federal issue. Uh, the Williams Institute also did a study last year that showed there was about 40,000 binational couples living in the United States. So I'm wondering what the panelists think is the outlook for federal uh, equality and uh, how many decades it will take to get to there, and what we need to do in the meantime. We find ourselves in the odd position a lot of talking with people, you know, like you, that in a situation where day-to-day -day you're facing incredible risks and threats and, and hardships and saying, please be patient, please be patient. Um, and, and we, and, you know, and it's a free country, and people file lawsuits uh, sometimes against the most... Uh, sincere pleading that we can do because we don't we would we would be in a much better position if we don't ask the supreme court too soon some questions you know it's one of these standard rules of being a lawyer be careful about don't ask a question unless you know what answer you're going to get or at least really think it through carefully but um an interesting thing that is happening or at least interesting if you're really pointy-headed in your thinking about law is that as um as states are providing uh protection there are more and more issues where federal and state law are, are um, out of accord, uh, whether it's federal tax law or whether it's things about benefits, you know, lots of areas. And I think there's some real hope, not within six months, so, you know, be realistic about it, but where the Congress may start to be willing to talk seriously about things that are sufficiently arcane and low profile um, but actually affect people rather significantly um, to deal with some of the discord between federal and state law. And I think what we should be hoping to see in terms of just what's it really going to look like 
is more of this kind of patchwork and different sorts of things. I mean, marriage, the, the, the meaning to people is so powerful. The symbolism is incredibly important. But the legal system is really complex and arcane. And if we have development of recognition, um, sometimes recognizing a relationship, sometimes recognizing a property right or a parental relationship that, it, that can exist irrespective of recognizing the relationship, we can move forward in a number of places. And as Alfonso was saying, get us to the place where there's enough recognition in state law and in a range of places in federal law where there's enough support for courts, including the Supreme Court, and also for members of Congress to realize that it has become safe to do what they know to be the right thing. Okay, we're out of time, unfortunately, but I'd like to thank our panelists. 